gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Hi, everybody. It's Jonah. Uh, this is the Remnant um, podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am, I've been trying to do this a bit and it's hard. Okay. So um, I don't know how chopped up this is going to need to be. Um, I don't even know if it's ever going to be released. Um, but by now, most people have heard uh, um, my mom died this week. And I'm just going to have to deal with some slurping because it, it keeps me from getting all choked up. Um, and you can probably figure out that, you know, every now and then I make these cryptic statements about other stuff going on in my life. And this was the biggest of them all. My mom was not well for a while. Um, really the last year I've gone, I probably haven't gone a month three weeks maybe without thinking, you know, um, this is the week my mom dies and, um, drove up there a lot up to New Jersey to either visit her in the hospital or cheer her up at home. Um, and, uh, it's been a long ride. And so I really didn't want, I don't want this to be morbid. So if, if I can't get it, straightened out. I won't do it. But, um, last week or the week before, whatever the last podcast, the podcast I did with Yuval, um, my phone was on do not disturb. And when I got off the, uh, the podcast and I closed the end, finished the ending, I, um, looked at my phone and I saw a bunch of texts and calls from, uh, this woman, Drew, who I have to explain who she is to all of you. 16 years ago, my um, my mom hired uh, Drew. I won't give her last name because she doesn't want to be a public figure. Um, to be a sort of part-time interior decorator. They became very good friends. Um, and my mom ended up hiring her as sort of uh, assistant in all of my mom's affairs from, you know, everything from the interior decorating stuff to, um, uh, stuff with Lucian.com, her website, um, to, you know, catering parties and organizing events. I mean, Drew's this amazing woman and they got closer and closer and closer. And then when my mom's health started to go, uh, my mom said to her, um, you take care of me for the rest of my life and I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. And it makes it sound like my mom was this fabulously wealthy woman. She wasn't, but she set aside some stuff and, 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 um, anyway, they reached an agreement. Obviously, um, we don't need to get into all that, but, um, Drew has probably saved my mom's life. I don't, probably a half dozen times is, is, are like the times I know about, but the actual number is probably five times that. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, uh, because she just, she made my mom, she became the general contractor for my mom's well being, And she was the one who followed 
what the various doctors would say and said, doesn't that conflict with what this doctor said? And didn't you say it was this dosage and not that dosage and yada, 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 yada. And there's a lot of bureaucracy in the medical profession and she navigated it and she was a hero and she stayed by my mom's side. Literally, she would sleep in chairs in hospital rooms and, um, and I, I just, I cannot begin to tell you how grateful and appreciative I am of what Drew did for my mom. Anyway, uh, I got these texts from Drew and these calls from Drew saying, you know, call me, blah, blah, blah. And we decided almost immediately after that, I'm not going to get into all the details, um, that it was finally time to put, to start the hospice process. And, um, we had resisted people telling us hospice for a long time because my mom was a tough old bird and she still had a lot of quality days where, you know, she was compass mentis and she was fine and she wasn't in pain. And, um, you know, we were going to, as long as there were quality days ahead, we weren't going to care about the quantity of them. And, um, so anyway, we, we pulled the trigger on that decision. It was at once among the easiest intellectually, one of the easiest decisions intellectually, you know, rationally, and one of the hardest emotionally. So anyway, um, I was in Western Pennsylvania. I recorded that podcast with Yuval and, uh, and then, you know, I had to get home slash up to Weehawken where my mom um, lives. And uh, so I got there very early the next day. Um, and, uh, and then the hospice process started. Um, we don't need to dwell on that. I'm sure it'll come up again, but, uh, it was hospice. People are amazing people. Um, I just want to say it is, it is one of these really weird things about healthcare in America is that when you're, um, when the conversation is about keeping people alive, there's all of this bureaucracy and ass covering and, um, you know, when in doubt, throw very expensive tests at things and, you know, and put people onto, you know, different part, you know, different portfolios of people of various doctors responsibility and all that kind of stuff. And second, the stuff becomes about death. Um, everyone is so unbelievably gracious and professional and uh, cuts through red tape in ways that are just astounding. And I mean, not just the hospice people, I also mean like funeral home people. Um, as longtime listeners know, I've had to deal with a lot of funerals in the last 15 years. And I've talked to a lot of, you know, funeral directors and stuff and, you know, they're good at it. And part of, and I, I think one of the things that's interesting about, I mean, the hospice stuff is very interesting um, but the, one of the, you know, trying to, I'm trying to insert some wonky visions of life stuff here. Uh, one of the things I think that makes it the case that funeral, people who work in the funeral business and people who work in hospice are so good at what they do is that if you weren't good at it, 
you wouldn't be in that profession, right? You, there's such a selection bias that, look, I, I like even let's just assume I was a nurse or a doctor or something, I couldn't do hospice stuff. It's for the same reason I always tell people I couldn't be a vet. Um, you know, I love animals. I think that's pretty clear. But uh, like to be a good vet, you have to like put animals in distress a lot. And I just couldn't do that every day. Um, and, uh, similarly, like I just, you know, I couldn't be part of a process where I'm dealing with, you know, intensely emotional people, family members and dying people every single day. And you really have to feel like you have, you know, a calling for it, either in the religious sense or otherwise, because other, you have other options and, and if you're not cut out for it, you'll fall by the wayside um, pretty early on in the process. And, um, and so the hospice people are just wonderful people. Um, they've seen it all. They've done it all. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm grateful to them all. And I'm also grateful just to the funeral people I've ever dealt with. They've all been, um, incredibly professional and gracious and all that. Um, um, Anyway, so Weehawken, I think I must have talked about Weehawken before. So my mom, I, I can try to move now to like, at least maybe do some happier talk here. Um, the, uh, oh, I should, I'm sorry, I should be clear. I'm trying to do this today, even though it's probably not a great idea because my emotions are so raw. Because I don't want to, I feel like I'm going to have to talk, do this podcast about my mom and I don't want it hanging over me for another week where I agonize about how to do it the right way and, you know, collect all of this, you know, stuff about my mom. Um, I kind of feel like I need to sort of do this. I'm going to try and write a G file today too about all this and then try to start pivoting, um, away from it. Um, even though, you know, there's going to be a long, long half-life, so to speak, probably not a great phrase, um, to my emotional state about all of this. Um, so anyway, I think I've mentioned the Weehawken thing, but it's funny and it's, it's, it's classic weird. So, you know, my parents were kind of like halfway between a New Yorker cartoon and a far side cartoon. They were strange people. And I mean that in the most loving way possible. Um, if you never read the eulogy I wrote for my dad about the hop bird, um, it kind of gets at the point about how my dad was a weird dude. And, um, uh, and my mom was weird. And I mean, weird is not the right word. My mom was one of a kind. People use one of a kind, um, you know, pretty promiscuously about a lot of people who weren't one of a kind. My mom was one of a kind. And, um, uh, so anyway, uh, 20-something years ago, oh, no, 19 years ago, because my daughter is 19, um, maybe, maybe 18 years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Maine at this little sort of uh, cabin that we had rented, and um, I get a phone call from my parents saying that they finally did it. They finally bought their country house, and... Um, as I, I, again, I'm now I'm sure I've talked about this before, but you know, my dad was, um, as, as I like to say, a great indoorsman. And his idea of a vacation was, 
either going to the other side of the couch to read a different magazine or book or going to Europe to look at museums. And um, my mom's idea of a vacation was basically um, a, a porch somewhere pretty where she could read various novels. And the Venn diagram between the two of them overlapped is that they both wanted to read the New York Times. And they both wanted to have martinis, or in my dad's case, uh, um, Gibson. Gibson, um, and uh, um, and then later, my dad was a Scotch guy. And um, anyway, but they like to have their cocktails and smoke their cigarettes, and um, that was sort of a vacation. And they tr- we rented a house at Fire Island one summer, or two summers, or three summers. I can't remember. Um, we tried this or that or the other thing, and there's nothing was right. And then finally, you know, near, you know, or sort of in retirement, they found their country house, which was this house in the cliffs of Weehawken, New Jersey, that overlooks basically the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel um, and has this view that when there are no leaves, you know, like in the wintertime and it's a clear day, you can see all the way to New York Harbor and all the way to the South Bronx. And if you go on my Twitter feed, you can see some pictures of the view. So my parents were like, uh, you know, so I grew up on 84th and Broadway, which if you know New York City is the Upper West Side. The Lincoln Tunnel on the Manhattan side of the Hudson River is at, uh, I want to say 34th Street. And so my parents would load up the beach bag with a bunch of newspapers and magazines and a body novel or whatever for my mom. And they would go to Zabar's and get locks and bagels and whatever. And then quote unquote, drive out to the country for the weekend. And the country meant driving out to the country meant going down the West side highway into the Lincoln tunnel. And five minutes after you're in the Lincoln tunnel, if there's no traffic, uh, driving up into the cliffs and, and, pulling into the garage of their quote unquote country house in Weehawken, New Jersey. And they would entertain there. They would, you know, read there. They would watch movies and TV there. Um, they'd have cocktails at cocktail hour and, and they would sit and they watch the sunset. And on Sunday, you know, my dad would be like, we better, uh, we better start heading into the city so we can beat all that weekend traffic. Um, and they would get, back in the car, go in the Lincoln Tunnel, get on the West Side Highway, get off at 84th Street, and go back to, quote-unquote, the city. Literally, my mom's, my parents' country house was closer to Midtown for, like, a lunch appointment than uh, where they lived and, um, and where I grew up. And so uh, after my dad died, my mom spent more and more time there but still lived at 84th Street and worked out at 84th Street and... Then after my brother died, uh, she was just like, I can't be in that apartment anymore. It's too many memories. So she moved full time out to Weehawken, which is where when we visit grandma, um, you know, we usually stay. And that's where I spent the last eight days um, of my mom's life, um, which was pretty grueling. You know, looking at pictures, going through photo albums, holding my mom's hand, all that. Um at least in the beginning, bathing in concert-level decibels of Fox News. Um, And uh, um, so it was a 
It was a, quite a week. Anyway, um, so I'm, I, I want to get into, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll have more coherent thoughts when I write about this in the G file, but um, I assume. Um, but, uh, and I, I really thought like maybe I should be working on this all last week, but you just can't do it. You can't, I can't concentrate on something if I know in any 15 minute, you know, window, I'm going to have to either get on the phone to talk about affairs or go up and be with my mom. And so I just, I couldn't do anything. I tried to write a column. I, you know, I just couldn't work. And I, uh, and thanks to all my dispatch colleagues for giving me the space. Um, I don't want to get too deep in the politics, but you know, it's weird. You know, there was a certain congruity, between my mom's politics and her philosophy of, of raising kids. And there were certain contradictions. My mom was a party gal. Um, I don't think there's really any disputing that when she was younger, she was, um, a very attractive leggy blonde, um, who liked to have a good time, wicked smart, um, and, uh, and wicked ambitious. And, uh, and she was part of an old Washington. I mean, she used to tell me, you know, what lunch was like, you know, at the, at the days she was working out of the press club um, in the early 60s. And it was, you know, on a Tuesday, you start with a martini and maybe you have two and then you switch to a, you know, a bottle of wine or a beer. And then you go back to your office and keep writing. And, and then you do it again on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And like, you know, I, I am no teetotaler, but I, I've never understood how people can get sloshed at lunchtime. And, um, and it was funny. So when I first started in working in, in Washington as Ben Wattenberg's research assistant at AEI, my mom came down to visit and she took me out to lunch and, you know, nearby there was this place. It's now a Morton's. It's on, I want to say L in Connecticut, but it used to be this very famous place called Duke Siebert's, which was where sort of Washington types did power lunches. The tables were sufficiently far apart that everyone could see each other and, but not overhear each other. Um, like Larry King, I think, kind of lived there. And, and Duke Zebert was this weird dude, kind of looked like a Jewish Colonel Sanders. At least that's my memory of him. And, uh, and my mom used to hold court there back in the 60s. And um, when, uh, and when we showed up, I mean, my mom hadn't been back there and this was like probably 91, 92, I probably hadn't darkened the door of Dukes in 15, 20 years. And Duke sees her and just lights up and runs over and hugs her. And they start, you know, t swapping stories. And, um, and I think that was when my mom first told me the story about her engagement party where uh, Duke, Duke, who, by the way, had lost ownership of the restaurant, my understanding, years earlier in like a card game or a craps game or something like that. But they kept him on as like a figurehead. Um, and, uh, um, Duke closed the restaurant down, um, to the row an engagement party for my mom. So this would have been like 65, early 66. And, um, um, and it was a huge turnout, you know, um, lots of friends, lots of journalist types, lots of political types. And, uh, most, and, you know, and a lot of sort of, and when I say, these are not like, you know, the Walter Cronkites, these are other fellow kind of like journeyman, 
you know, up and coming struggling writers and, and, you know, a mix of hacks and, 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 and golden boy type people and everything in between. And, um, anyway, so like, apparently this is back in the days where having Filipino busboys was a thing. I don't completely know. I mean, like the white house mess, I think had Filipino busboys through the Navy because Filipino, you know, service staff was a thing in the Navy. I, I, I don't know. Uh, someone will send me an email explaining it all. But the way my mom told the story, they, the crowd parts as this Filipino busboy brings out this big domed platter to, um, and it's Duke's present to my mom uh, for her engagement. And it is, the number changed a lot over the years. Uh, I think the correct one is about $3,000. It was the, my mom's uh, bar tab torn up. Um, sort of ceremonially torn up, uh, um, or three thousand dollar in nineteen sixty five or sixty six dollars bar tab, and uh, again, I'm sure the number was embellished. My mom could embellished, uh, but uh, anyway, that was sort of the life that my mom lived prior to getting married, and um, but she always had this sort of weird mix of you know, liking to have a good, how to explain this. So like, yeah, I've talked about this before about how I have this certain amount of like admiration for the Victorian era where, um, you know, you could have a wildlife behind closed doors, but you were supposed to, everyone was supposed to observe the same inconvenient moral codes of behavior. Um, my mom kind of had a little bit of that. She believed that, you know, um, there was a thing called propriety, you know, she was, um, and she had a lot of fun sort of testing the limits of it. Um, but she didn't have a lot of tolerance for people who rejected it. And, um, so it's funny. I was talking to Drew about this the other day. I remember the moments when both my parents, you know, officially declared that they, they couldn't stand Bill Clinton. And, uh, for my dad, it was, it was funny. It was this, it was this uh, Wall Street Journal thing, I think during the transition after Clinton got elected. I mean, obviously he didn't like Clinton just as a, you know, partisan thing. But uh, where, where it became sort of a personal distaste was when he read this long profile, this long piece in the Wall Street Journal that uh, described how Clinton um, had this epic, this marathon, like four hour meeting with everybody around the table, um, like lots and lots of people around the table. And it was where he held court. He, he meandered. They talked about a zillion things, not resolving really anything. And then Clinton pushes back from the table at the end of like four hours and says, oh, that was great. And my dad was the kind of business guy and the kind of journalist that generally hated meetings. And if you're going to have a meeting, you wanted to be fast and quick and to the point. Um, and like to have a, have when Clinton pushes back from the table and stretches like he, you know, it just bedded an intern or finished a meal um, and needs to smoke a cigarette because of how much he loved a, just an endless meeting. My dad was like, yeah, this is not, not, not my guy. And for my mom though, it was weird. It was like visceral from day one. Um, I remember, her, my, you know, my mom grew up 
in Alexandria when Alexandria, Virginia was, was still the South. And, um, she was like, I know, I knew boys like, like Bill Clinton. I knew boys like him. He was that kind of guy. He was that kind of boy that would be, who would skip school and would be sitting out front of school, um, sitting on his, the hood of his car, smoking a cigarette with, um, um, and drinking, or no, with a pack of cigarettes on, rolled up in his sleeve and drinking a Coke. And I could never get to the bottom of why, like, drinking a Coke was this, like, huge cultural tell for my mom. But anyway, there was just something about Bill Clinton that she just thought was tacky and terrible. And she thought, you know, Papa Bush was dignified and all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I don't talk about it much, but my mom, you know, you know how I talk all the time about how, like, all these nationalist conservatives don't know any of their own history and all this kind of stuff? Like, the... The, a lot of the anti-feminist stuff on the right, which I'm, I, I don't have problems with. I don't, you know, like I, I it, it depends which generation of IWF we're talking about, but like the Independent Women's Forum, uh, which started up in the 90s, uh, you know, my mom and this woman, Jeannie Sakel and um, John Pod's mom, uh, Midge Dector, they were, um, they were sort of the gener a generation younger or at least a half generation, but maybe a generation younger than Phyllis Schlafly. But they were like the, the inheritors of that stuff. And I want to be very clear. I have a lot of disagreements with my mom about, I had a lot of disagreements about my mom about some of that stuff. And I also thought there was a certain amount of kind of like hilarious hypocrisy about my mom on some of that stuff. Cause a more independent, freewheeling, strong woman um, has never existed in my life. And one of the things that has, and I, and, and, and I include my wife who all of my male friends are terrified of <laughs> in a good way. They also like her, but you know, my, my wife is a very tough lady and she would concede there was nobody as tough and as independent and as strong willed as my mom. So it was kind of funny about all her thing about traditional marriage and traditional motherhood and f traditional femininity. And my mom campaigned against the ERA and there was always I could never quite figure out exactly how much irony and performative stuff there was to it and how much of it was real. I think the principles and the ideals were real, but a lot of the politics and performance stuff of it was fun. And um, I, I had an intern find this for me. Um, this is uh, a a uh, Right up. So my mom was the co-founder of something called the Pussycat League, which, as you, again, kind of like sort of ironic, sort of funny, sort of serious. Uh, again, I don't know. Uh, they actually, she co-wrote a book called Purr Baby Purr, which is like this anti-feminist uh, manifesto. But anyway, so like this is a Reuters piece that ran in the Washington Post and the Times Herald. I can't quite figure out the, the sourcing on this because it comes from ProQuest. But uh it's, it's, I mean, I'll read the whole thing because that way I won't get all verklempt again, um, at least for a little while. The headline is just Sourpuss Awards. It begins, the Pussycat League, Inc., an international anti-women's lib organization, announced its first annual Sourpuss Awards here today to people who most undermine harmony between the sexes including former Attorney General John Mitchell and sex research researchers Masters and Johnson. The group's second annual Pussycat Awards, 
which goes to those who have, quote, enjoyed and otherwise developed harmony between the sexes, were also announced. Recipients of the Pussycat Awards included Carl Friedan, the former husband of National Organization for Women founder Betty Friedan, Senator Sam Irvin, D, North Carolina, who led the fight against the equal rights, uh, against the equal rights for women amendment, and presidential advisor and bachelor Henry Kissinger for, quote, managing to keep alive a bachelor frivolity in between affairs of state, unquote. Friedan got his award. This is this is Betty Friedan's ex-husband. Friedan got his award for, quote, providing moral and financial support to his wife while she wrote a book, The Feminine Mystique, explaining that any woman who accepts moral and financial support from a man is a prostitute, unquote. The sex research team of Dr. William Johnson and his wife, Virginia Masters Johnson, won the, quote, sourpuss sexual fallacy sweepstakes for treating human bodies like late model cars in need of servicing. The group announced at a press conference, Mitchell was awarded, quote, the golden, the golden receiver ribbon for using his wife, Martha, to make his headlines and then quitting his job to shut her up, unquote. And this is the kicker of the last graph. One of the league's founders, Mrs. Lucianne Goldberg, said the awards and her group were entirely serious because, quote, women's lib has done to femininity what the Boston Strangler did for door-to-door selling. Um, anyway, a lot of this stuff was happening, like this is 1972, I was three years old. Um, my first memory of my mom really having a job job I mean, she was always typing, right? So she must have been typing something. But uh, the first time I remember having a job job, I was a little older than this. And my mom, who grew up around horses and loved to ride, she had decided that she wanted uh, an excuse to ride on somebody else's dime. And so she and a friend uh, joined the New York City Police Department's um, mounted auxiliary uh, police force. And so she was a mounted policewoman. And she had the, I have pictures of it. You know, she was all dressed up. They didn't give her a gun. They gave her a billy club and a walkie talkie. And she would do like parade duty. She would patrol Central Park. It was great. One time my dad took my brother and I to the zoo at Central Park. And then along comes my mom galloping across, um, uh, you know, the park and scooped us up and gave us rides around on her horse. And that was sort of like my mom. Uh, she always just did things differently because she wanted to do things differently. So I went to Rhoda Fitzgerald Day School, right? Because my mom was not Jewish and she was very clear on that. But the deal was uh, with my dad that they would have a Jewish wedding, that they would raise the kids Jewish. Um, and my mom said, okay, but we have to have a Christmas tree. And and that was the deal. And so I went to Rhoda Fitzgerald Day School where you sent kids back in those, it was the first reformed Jewish day school. Um, and as I always used to say, it's where you sent your kids to be raised Jewish, but not too Jewish. Um, and very liberal school, very touchy feely. Um, and, um, um, and so anyway, my mom, you know, who would make us bagged lunches as kids and, um, she would draw a little uh, trumpet on my brother's lunch bag because um, my brother's name was Josh. 
and he would draw, and she would draw a little whale on my lunch bag. And, um, you know, took two seconds. My mom was a good, you know, a, a good doodler kind of artist. She could draw pretty well, sort of like my daughter, Lucy. Um, my daughter Lucy's probably better, but, um, and it became a thing where <laughs> the other kids were getting jealous that their names were not conducive to pictograms of some kind. I mean, what's the drawing for Ben or what's the drawing for uh, David other than maybe throwing a rock in a giant's eye? I don't know. But anyway, there were kids and they were, they were mopey about it. And in part because everyone knew that my mom was a cool mom and fun mom, you know, and a lot of the kids, you know, they would get, you know, rice cake, rice cake, rice cakes, you know, for, for their dessert and their lunch bag. And my mom would always put, you know, cookies and whatever in and, and it, um, it's one of the reasons I don't have a sweet tooth is that my mom was just never really cared about denying me that kind of dessert stuff. And so like Dr. Spock says, I didn't come to think of it as much of a treat either anyway. Uh, but it did help me rule, um, you know, fourth grade with an iron fist because I could dispense with all sorts of, um, uh, sugary stuff to kids whose parents, um, were horrified by, you know, an Oreo cookie. So anyway, uh, the kids complained and they actually called my mom in to say, uh, it's hurting the, it's, it's causing problems with the other kids that, um, they can't have drawings on their lunch bags the way Jonah can. And would you mind stopping so that everyone can, you know, feel better? And my mom just said, no effing way, you know, too bad. Um, if the other kids don't have drawings, uh, names for drawings, I'm sure l let them learn from this hardship. And no one could really comprehend like that she would have ever said it, but that was just her position. And, um, that was, you know, that was my mom. She was a, she was the fierce protector of her boys. And, and I mean, like literally, uh, parents would take turns when I was going home from school in grade school, particularly when I was younger in grade school, because as I've mentioned here a thousand times, uh, I lived on 84th street. My grade school was like on 83rd and Central Park West, but it was literally too dangerous for a long time to walk across Amsterdam and Columbus, uh, to school. And, um, at least for little kids. And so parents would take a, take turns basically doing a pedestrian carpool where one parent would walk all the kids from our side, you know, from our area to school in the morning and, or from home. And one morning or one afternoon after school must've been like second grade. Cause I remember she picked me up from the old building, um, your first or second grade. She picked me up and she was walking her bike. She'd ridden her bike to pick me up. And, a bunch of us were walking back and back then we called, uh, drunk, uh, homeless people, winos, you know, um, um, and this guy, I mean, I don't know that he was homeless, but he was missing a lot of teeth and he was very drunk and old black guy. And, um, he saw me, ran over to me and picked me up. And again, this is like, you know, I'm, I'm like six or something, five or six. I start screaming because I'm terrified. And this guy's like smiling at me and kind of drooling with like maybe four or five teeth in his face. And, um, 
And my mom, who had been walking ahead, turns around and just sees me screaming and this guy picking me up and I'm screaming. And she flips out, drops the bike, runs over and just basically becomes a helicopter of fists and throws this guy up against the wall. And it turned out the guy just thought I was cute. No real harm was done. Everything was fine. Um, but that was my mom. And, um, and she stayed that kind of mom her whole life, or my whole life, I should say. And, um, you know, there were, there were tragedies and drama with my brother, which we don't need to get into. Um, but, you know, my mom had this basic philosophy of if it made a good story and no one got hurt, it was probably worth doing. And, um, you know, so like my brother's bar mitzvah was at the uh, convent of the sacred heart and they just threw a big drape over the portrait of mother superior. And, um, my mom hired a bagpiper to play Hava Nagila. Um, we got a cat. She got a cat in the 1990s Margaret, Wonderful cat. Because she was in a Dwayne Reed and she said to the person, that cat, I want that cat because it matches the carpet in my living room. So that's why they got it. Uh, our first, uh, our dogs, our, our, we had a dog, a schnauzer named Sophie. And, um, and there was some crazy joke I can't remember the details of, but we named it Sophie because it was some shot at Sophie Gimble um, and she had bought it from Gimble's. Um, the, the, the story according to legend about why she got fired from the Johnson white house. She was like in the typist pool, secretarial pool, something like that. Um, was she was in an elevator with the wrong person when she told the joke, um, uh, how do you tell, I, I think the Johnson daughters were like, um, was it Lucy and Linda? Um, anyway, it says, how do you tell, um, the Johnson daughters apart. Um, and the joke was, uh, Lucy's the tall, ugly one and Linda's the short, ugly one. And so she was out of there again, maybe apocryphal. They wrote about that in like people magazine or something like that. I remember reading that. Um, and, um, she made life incredibly fun because she wanted life to be fun. And, um, you know, she, it was it was very strange during the whole Lewinsky stuff because um, she became kind of a she became a obviously she became a public figure and um, the public figure was it was her for sure but it was also a bit of a character caricature of her because she was sort of playing a part and, um, and she believed in what she was doing, you know, to the extent that the, you know, again, you know, my mom was not like some sort of finger wagging prude about anything and all that kind of stuff. But she showed what she shared with Linda Tripp was this thing about propriety, you know, and there's a time and place for doing things and there's a time and place for not doing them. And, um, she thought doing things in a classy dignified way when appropriate was necessary and mandatory and when not, not. And, um, but, uh, that whole thing, you know, like I worked very hard to like not have all of that stuff define me cause I was just starting out in life. I mean, I had written, um, 
freelance before and had written for National Review before it all blew up and we had, you know, been a television producer and all that. But all of a sudden I'm pulled into all that. And I, and, and I always used to say, you know, I, I was pulled into it. And in some ways I was, but I also, you know, I also jumped to a certain extent and because it was fun and it was interesting and I thought I was on the right side of stuff and because people were attacking my mom. I mean, that's, that's sort of, that was sort of the gateway drug to it was that um, since no one knew anything, you know, um, and you can go watch your Isikoff stuff or your read the Wikipedia thing. I'm not going to go into the TikTok. I don't find the whole period nearly as fascinating as a lot of people do. Um, in part because I was in it, in part because um, I just didn't want it to define my life. I had a very specific mission, which was at the time defending my mom the way she defended me. And so, like, but the reason why I got sort of dragged into it is like, you know, there were these meetings with Linda. Everyone gets it wrong about, you know, the apartment because there were actually two different meetings or three different meetings and two different apartments. And I don't care because it just doesn't freaking matter. But, um, and I was delighted to be cut out of the, this FX thing, which I still haven't watched, but the sort of sociology of it or the, the, the sort of dynamic of it was that this was not an RNC thing. No one in the Republican party knew anything about any of this stuff. This wasn't like part of like, um, a, it wasn't a, a Newt Gingrich dirty op or anything like that. It was basically my mom working um, essentially kind of on her own um, and then getting caught up with, with, with some journalistic stuff and there's this other stuff we don't need to get into. But my only point was is that when the, th- when the story broke, when Drudge broke this thing about Clinton, no one in the Republican Party knew what to say. No one in the conservative movement knew what to say because there, it wasn't in those channels. And so um, my mom, you know, said some things that she shouldn't have said, you know, because my mom was a colorful speaker. Um, and she had said something along the lines of if they attacked me the way they were attacking, I can't remember if it was Linda Tripp or Paula Jones or something like that. She said, I'd be on my front, I'd be in my front yard with a deer rifle. Um, now my mom didn't have a front yard. My mom didn't have a deer rifle, but you get the point. And like Paul got Bagala was attacking you know, going on CNN, attacking my mom, saying, you know, you have people talking about using deer rifles and all this stuff. And people were, you know, just losing their minds, attacking, you know, Linda Tripp and my mom. And nobody had any information. They didn't know how to gauge anything. And so I was, um, and my mom shouldn't have been talking about deer rifles. Um, and I was more in the loop than all but maybe four people in the world, five people in the world about all this stuff. And people were saying terrible things about my mom. And there were, you know, and people, I had enough friends already in that world that I would see the talking points that were being issued by DNC types and political hacks of one form or another. Um, And I would see the things they were saying about my mom. And, you know, I just basically went into, you know, um, defensive mode. And my mom needs me. I don't really care about all these other issues. And I went at it and we... Mom and I got very, very close um, during all of this. I mean, we were always close. Um, you know, my mom used to, um, we were always close. And, uh, um, but this was sort of different. And um, 
I was after a while pretty eager to extricate myself from this whole thing. And, um, and that's basically when, um, I moved to national review and, um, and the rest is sort of, uh, is history. Um, and, uh, but like, I didn't write a book about all that stuff. I didn't want to do all that. And, you know, and my mom, she, to her credit, um, you know, she enjoyed being out there in the limelight and all that. And, um, but she also understood that like, it was a weird look to have, um, um, my mom that much in the public eye when I was trying to sort of start my career. And so she kind of pulled back. She started Lucienne.com, which was hugely successful. I got my disagreements with it. You know, my mom, um, and, well, and I will disagree about politics from time, would disagree about politics from time to time. Um, but given my mom's sort of tendency to see politics as a form of entertainment, which I do not, um, you know, she always was, uh, more sympathetic to the Trump stuff than I was. Um, and you know, and Lucien.com became sort of that, but, uh, I, you know, that site was hugely influential in the early days of the internet. And, you know, it's funny, I always used, I, I think I've talked about this before, um, analogy I often use is that, you know, my mom um, was sort of made for the internet in a certain way because she was fast thinking, she was funny, she was wicked smart, she knew lots of things, and she could um, cut through a lot of the BS um, in ways that were entertaining. And um, I did not have that ability in the beginning. And um, I think I inherited some of the natural skill for that. But I, when I first started writing, you know, I think the first piece I wrote for, you know, the public interest was, um, you know, I would, I would forget the public interest. The stuff I would write, write for, I wrote for commentary or for the Wall Street Journal and stuff. Like I put a lot of time into writing in the beginning and, and was very earnest. And, um, and my mom was just quick. And I learned to be quick because of the internet as well. Um, but she, you know, the analogy I often use is like, you know, this John Keegan, I think I talked about this recently here, uh, military historian. He said, you know, that what made the Plains, Indi I think it was like the Apache and the Cherokee, but whatever, the, those Plains Indians that the United States worked so hard to, to um, eradicate. Um, he was asked that, you know, who are the deadliest um, warriors of all time? And he said, well, you know, you can't just talk about who is the you know, deadliest is different than bravest, right? Because you can be brave, but if all you have is like a spoon, um, you're not going to be all that deadly. Um, and he said it was the convergence of three things. It was the, um, the culture of the, those Plains Indian braves combined with, and the culture includes the geography that produced that culture and the introduction of the Eurasian horse into North America and the, by the Spanish and the introduction of the Remington rifle or there's the rifle and those three things in combination made those Indians among the deadliest warriors in all of human history. And I used to use that analogy about my mom and the internet. It was like my mom spent a career as a writer and um, 
and an agent provocateur um, or whatever. And uh, and I've even talked about, how, you know, she was a literary agent and all this stuff. Um, and it all came together in a way that made her really good at the internet really quickly and really early. Um, and um, I should best, I, I guess I should talk about the literary agent stuff. So I grew up, you know, my mom, again, she wanted to be a mom. She was, um, she believed in being a mom. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that she was a little estranged, you know, she was estranged from her own mom who was um, tough. And so was her dad. It was really tough. My, I just found out a month or so ago, um, visiting my mom, that um, my grandfather, um, his, the so my you know my my mom's you know was born with the name von Steinberger, and um, it turns out that that's an adopted name. Um, that either my grandfather or my great grandfather, I think it was my great grandfather. Um, so my mom's grandfather came to like Ohio, um, at the end of the 19th century or beginning of the 20th century. And they was, and he was basically an indentured servant of the von Steinbergers. Um, and he took their name. So I got to look into this in terms of the ancestry of it all. But, um, uh, you know, my mom grew up Episcopalian and her dad was a nuclear physicist. Um, and, uh, you know, things get embellished over the years, but I looked it up. He didn't, I, when I was a little kid, I thought he invented sonar. Um, when in fact he invented something like the sound transducer, which is like the precursor to sonar. He was a physicist for the Navy and he was, at one point, I checked with this with my mom fairly recently, like a, my mom always used to say a roommate of Robert Oppenheimer's, but I think they like lived in the same dorm or same group house or something like that. But he was a very serious physicist and, and a very strict dude. And, um, and my mom was a big believer in, you know, being a very nurturing, fun mom, she sometimes, we, you know, it took her some time to realize that, that there are places where being a mom means not being your friend because she wanted to be a cool mom and all that. Um, but she was also just a really cool mom. And, um, so she worked, she ran the literary agency and she was probably the first successful independent, um, certainly the first successful conservative literary agent, um, in the United States. And, um, and so she, I mean, the list, I can't even get into the list of books and authors that she represented, you know, um, and some of them were, some of them weren't necessarily conservative all. And, you know, like big part of like my, I, I, my, my, can you, can boys be tweens? But, you know, when I, I don't know, I was like 11 or 12 or 13, something like that. Um, my mom represented the valet, the royal valet um, to, um, was it Princess Diana or Charles or whatever? And he wrote this tell-all book and oh my gosh, the, just the, the phone would ring every three minutes for, it feels like a year between all the tabloids and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, she represented Chris Buckley. She, 
represented this guy, Leo Damore. Um, it was really funny. I had completely forgotten about Leo. Um, he wrote a book called um, Senatorial Privilege. That was this huge expose about Chappaquiddick, um, you know, the thing with Ted Kennedy. And my wife and I, when we were driving up to Maine this summer, she f- she likes these sort of true crime investigative, investigative long-form podcasts. She found this thing about um, Chappaquiddick, and about three or four episodes in, all of a sudden, it's basically just as told to by Leo Damore, author of Senatorial Privilege. And it's all about his notes and what he found. And they're just basically, I mean, they're giving full credit, but it was just basically, you know, his book, which is weird because back when he wrote it, man, did the sort of liberal establishment, you know, denounce it as as garbage and all this kind of stuff. But he actually did his homework. Um and there was lots of sort of uh, drama about all of that. I remember she handled some someone who wrote uh, a book having to do with the mob, and we went to a party out in Brooklyn for it, and, like, we thought someone took a shot at the party, but it turned out they had just thrown, like, a lead ball through a window of a car to make it seem like they took a shot, and... And and lots of sort of sopranos like chest pounding and punching and all that kind of stuff took place. Uh, she handled this guy uh, who was a KGB um, defector, a Romanian guy who told all these stories about Yasser Arafat, you know, diddling his East German bodyguards. Um, um, and, uh, you know, dozens of, I mean, she represented Mark Furman in the 90s. That was quite a scene. Um, and she was also, because, partly because she was a literary agent, but also because she was part of this sort of, like, New York scene, you know, she was probably, there are probably like 100, 200 people in New York City that are, you know, like, uh, you know, I have this thing about Pareto distributions, you know, 80-20 distributions. Um where like 80% of of the gossip goes through like 20% of the sources. And my mom was one of those people. She was, you know, on direct dial to page six and Cindy Adams and all those kinds of people. She was just in the loop. She was very good friends with Dominic Dunn. Um, And that was one of, you know, that was one of the things that was a big learning experience for both me and my mom is the friends who, yeah, you can say my mom took things too far during the Lewinsky stuff, or you can say she didn't take them far enough. I, I don't give a rat's ass. But she lost a lot of friends who just found it too difficult to be, um, too difficult socially and politically to be friends with my mom. And Dominic Dunn was one of them. And I I don't know if he's still alive and I don't care, but, you know, it was a real betrayal. Um, Mark Furman basically couldn't handle the idea that his agent would be more famous than him. Um, and there were a bunch of people who just got, um, cold feet, including people like, you know, the parents of friends I grew up with. And my mom (laughs) did not forget that. Um, and which I think in some ways is a shame because, you know, it takes two to tango and, um, if someone wanted to rekindle a friendship, you know, sometimes she did, but often she didn't. Um, and it made her tougher and more reserved and all that. And, um, but it was like, it was one of these great teaching experiences for me in terms of, first of all, seeing how, uh, 
you know, the world of high end, uh, sort of TV journalism works where the schmoozing from places like the today show and 60 minutes were not always ethical. Um, and, uh, lots of winks and nods and, oh, we can arrange that or that could be done or that kind of thing. You know, a lot of Don Hewitt chicanery. Um, but it also taught me like early on that, uh, that casual Washington friends aren't necessarily real friends and, um, and that real friends, you, you recognize them pretty quickly and, um, um, and I promise you this, I may talk more about my mom in the future. I'm sure I'll talk about my mom in the future. I've held off talking about my mom as much, you know, I talk about my dad a lot, um, in part because sort of intellectually he was a bigger influence on me in some ways and in important ways. Um, and I take after my dad in a lot of ways. Um, but one of the reasons I didn't talk about my mom a lot is she's so controversial and also because she was alive and, um, um, and, you know, and she's polarizing and, um, and also just, you know, it's like, it's one of the reasons why I didn't tell people for a year on this podcast that she was struggling because I didn't want to create problems for her, you know? And, um, and so anyway, but now, you know, it, I guess it'll be different, but I'm not going to talk about the Lewinsky stuff much more ever again, because I just, I truly don't find it very interesting. Um, and, you know, um, it's, and I don't, you know, forget, I, I don't think it defines me. I think I've, I've proven that over the years. Um, but I said, I never really liked how it came to define her. Um, you know, my mom had, she had these amazing stories. Um, you know, she was and look, and ethically I got problems with all of it. I do. Again, my mom represented a different time and a different kind of politics, but man, did I love her and man, did she have fantastic stories. And, you know, so she, was um, a spy for the Nixon campaign on the McGovern press plane and press bus. She took a thousand bucks a week to basically share, share gossip. It was mostly like, um, you know, because apparently Nixon really liked gossip, and um, and so there was nothing earth shattering or whatever in it. And I, it would not shock me at all if if Democrats had people on the. And on the Nixon plane, then again, you know, they didn't need to pay people, you know, the press extra to share crap about Nixon because, um, that was considered, you know, the, the essence of good journalism back in the era of Woodward and Bernstein and all that. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, so she was on, you know, she was on the bus with Hunter S. Thompson and I, you know, and I would ask her about, you know, Thompson, he says, well, to be honest, I don't. Um, you know, remember talking to him too much because he was always unconscious for most of the, <laughs> most of the trips. Um, and you know, I got these stories here about, you know, these headlines about how my, you know, a agent of the Nixon campaign reveals that, uh, there was pot smoking on the McGovern, um, bus and all this kind of stuff. And that she smoked marijuana cigarettes and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and she spared me some of these stories until I was old enough to hear them because she, she wanted to sort of raise our kids to be normal, moral people. And, um, and, um, so anyway, she's a complicated figure. Uh, but she was, you know, she, 
I still consider, you know, as John Pedort said when they did the commentary roast about me, you know, John was like, you know, Jonah's, you know, he's got this name and, you know, but he's not really a Jew. He's more Jew-ish. And, um, and I think that's f- fair. But, I, you know, again, went to Rode of Sholem Day School, grew up Jewish. I consider myself Jewish. Um, but one of the things, you know, that was interesting about having a, a Christian mom was that whenever my mom had to do something that was really inconvenient, but the right thing to do, she would always say, oh, I really don't want to go to this or oh, I really don't want to lend them the money, but it's the Christian thing to do. And I think it's one of the things that always sort of culturally gave me, um, you know, because again, I grew up in a very New York Jewish heavy, certainly not Christian heavy background. I mean, obviously I, I, I knew Christian people and I knew Catholic people and, and, and all that, but not that many, right? Because it was just like, that was the world, the Upper West Side. And both my, my grade school was all Jewish and my high school was, was, I don't know, half Jewish, something like that. And, um, but it always made a lasting mark on me that whenever my mom had to do, felt she had to do the right thing, she would always frame it as, I need to do this because it's the Christian thing to do. And that has always sort of stuck with me. And I think it was a very useful thing to, um, you know, to for me, the, the way I sort of have this instinctual, you know, sort of aversion to anti-Christian bigotry. And it's not because, oh, because my mom was Christian. It's because the way my mom defined being Christian was sort of a very menschy Jewish kind of way, which was doing the right thing, you know. Um, she wouldn't say, what would Jesus do or anything like that? But, you know, it always made its mark on me. And um, um, anyway, I, there's other stuff I thought I was going to talk about. I don't know that I can do it. Um, I, just a word about the grief thing. Um, I, so I find myself, you know, Steve, lots of people keep checking on me to see how I'm doing. Um, it's interesting, the people who, I don't want to criticize anybody because my mom had a lot of friends and a lot of fans and a lot of people who owed her a lot, but it's interesting, the people who want to intrude on me in my, in dealing with all of this in ways that, um, are more about them than about me. And, um, it can be very frustrating at times and I have to try very, very hard um, to remember that other people are grieving too. And, but generally speaking, you know, the, the, the people get it is like, you know, you need a certain, uh, the people who get me at least understand that I need a certain amount of space and, you know, calling me and saying, how are you doing? Um, is an imposition, you know, texting me is fine, you know, um, sending condolences. That's great. I appreciate it. And the condolences have really been wonderful, but, um, you know, I only have so many conversations in me to describe how I'm doing and the people I want to have them with, um, know to give me some space. And, um, and that's in part because like, and, and I, I should be used to this now, you know, I've lost my dad, my brother, my mom, my brother's wife, 
two of my wife's siblings and both of her parents. And, and that's not even to mention some, some friends. And I, I, I know this about myself. It's that I'll often feel incredibly guilty because I don't feel bad, right? That I can just feel normal. And, and then somebody asks me, you know, just a random question and I start to answer it and I'll just start blubbering. And it's almost impossible. And it's not impossible to predict. Um, uh, you know, some questions I'll just start crying. And if I try to answer them, but then it's weird. Uh, some questions won't make me start crying and I don't apologize for crying. I mean, I don't like it. It makes me feel kind of helpless and all that, but I, I you know, I'm not embarrassed by it. Um, I mean, maybe on this podcast, you know, um, but I don't know, maybe I am embarrassed. Anyway, it's a kind of, it's a weird feeling to lose control. Um, particularly, um, um, crying in front of my daughter is really, really hard on me. Um, but you know, there's this, um, there's this weird thing, you know, it's like, there's the grief and, um, there's, uh, there's the relief that comes and then there's the guilt about the relief and, and then the guilt and the regret about not doing this thing the right way or that thing or this argument or whatever. Um, and then there's just an enormous amount of self-pity that weighs in and figuring out where one one begins and the other one leaves off is very hard. And um, I'll probably write about more about this because I don't, I can't talk about this. Um, you know, one of my big, I don't feel any self, my point about self-pity, it says, you know, I'm a 53 year old man. I've had some success. I have a wonderful family. I have a wonderful daughter. Um, I have lots of good friends. I have, you know, I'm very proud of, you know, starting the dispatch and all that. Um, I don't feel self-pity that I lost my mom, um, or at least not much. She lived a, a really impressive life. And please, everybody should really read John Podoritz's uh, little tribute to my mom over a commentary. It, it captures a real slice of, of my mom. Um, it doesn't get into the, uh, the thing is, it's like, I'm the only expert left really. I mean, I have some friends from high school and grade school who, who know a little different about my mom, but like, you know, my mom was partly cause we grew up with these, you know, a lot of my friends had these very, you know, career oriented, hard charging, um, very sort of liberal feminist moms who thought it was some sort of betrayal to their gender or their sex or whatever to cook or to know how to cook. And my mom like believed passionately in the importance of knowing how to cook and being a good cook and, and making meals for her family. And I'm not saying she did it every single night, but she, you know, most nights for sure. And we had, you know, dinners around the table and my, and my mom, um, was an amazing cook and she would like, she would, when my, I had these friends in high school who would come over and we'd play board games or whatever. And, 
you know, she loved feeding boys. This is something that my mom had in common with my wife. She likes, like, likes feeding boys. I'm sure she liked feeding girls too, but like she likes feeding hungry boys. And, you know, my mom would see us, you know, we would play these, you know, these tricked out games of Monopoly and, and my mom would come out and see us here and say, okay, who wants fried chicken? And she would go into the kitchen and make homemade fried chicken. And for my, you know, some of my friends who like literally didn't have a home cooked meal more than once or twice a month, <laughs> if that, they just thought it was magical. My mom would make her own potato chips, you know, and, um, and the fridge always had, you know, good leftovers. Um, and it was just like part of who my mom was. And, um, she was, she was good at the mom stuff. I mean, uh, I remember she, you know, um, you know, she would bust out the sewing machine and she just thought that was part of like being a mom. And then she would go back into her office in the house and, um, you know, yell at some senator or TV personality for not getting their manuscript done or whatever. I mean, she just was, she was an impressive, impressive lady. Um, and so like, I, I, I don't, there's no tragedy in how my mom ended her 87th year. Um, there's, you know, there were tragedies like my brother and like, that's one of the things that comes up a lot in my head is, is my brother being gone. Um, cause he shouldn't be gone yet. yet. And, um, the, the self pity is just, um, it's that I'm the last survivor of this little civilization, you know? Um, I wrote about this when my brother died. I talked about this on here when Chantal died. Um, you know, I had this really cool, weird, truly unique family. It had all, it had all, all sorts of flaws, and I'm not denying that. Like, my brother died because he had addiction problems. And, you know, and my brother's addictions and his demons caused, you know, my dad and my mom you know, incredible anguish and, and great disagreements. I'm not saying it was perfect, but it was, man, it was unique and it was interesting and it was fun. And, um, and we have stories and I've been so, you know, driven about other things in my life and building my own life and all that kind of stuff. I haven't talked to those stories a lot because first of all, my brother's not around to sort of ping off him. And I feel like I'm sort of, you know, this, you know, uh, you know, the man who fell to earth or something. I come from this other civilization and, um, I'm not, I don't feel lonely. I just don't know, um, how to process, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not quite last of the Mohicans, but it's like sort of the last of the Goldbergs. And, you know, look, I got cousins and I got uncles and all that kind of stuff. We're also Goldbergs, you know, um, um, but they're not these weird people that my mom and dad were who had no business on paper marrying each other. Um, they were such different people from such different backgrounds, um, such different personalities, but they amused the hell out of each other. And... Um, um, and they love their boys and I feel very lucky. 
Um, and so anyway, uh, last point, cause it kind of jibes with, um, you know, the conversation I had with Russ Roberts, the conversation I had with Yuval, and I've been talking about it a lot with my wife and with Drew and with myself. Um, you know, when I was talking to you all last week, I talked a lot about how, you know, I kind of resent because I was sort of like I took after my mom. Right. I, cu- I pressed the edge of the envelope on being sort of funny and 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 norm busting and irreverent and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of feel a certain amount of uh, resentment that like now the line for what counts as inappropriate, it kind of just has disappeared and you can be as gross or as mean or as cruel as you want. And there's no wit or, or, or grace to anything. Um, certainly in the, in the sort of social media world. And I resent it because there are people who are either doing this stuff or really the people who don't mind it or make apologies for it, um, should know better. Right. And, but, you know, and Yuval has this whole thing about how, you know, it's, it's definitely a bingo card um, thing. It's people need to ask, what's my role here? You know, what am I supposed to be doing here? And, you know, I spent a year going back and forth thinking this is it for my mom, thinking I better hurry. And then she got better and I was happy that she got better. I was truly happy that she got better. I um, mean, better is in relative terms. I mean, she was basically bedridden for a year, but like she got out of the mess that she was in and she could go home and she could talk on the phone and, and, and she can talk in person and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but you know, each time after a while you get this kind of, it's not boy who cried wolf. No one was making anything up. These were all medical emergencies, but you get to this point where you feel like they're almost like little mock executions of your soul. And you start building up scar tissue about it. And, um, and one of the things like, do I have to like, you know, I got this trip planned or I got this speech planned or I got this meeting thing or like, there's this thing going on with my daughter. Do I really have to cancel that and go up there again? Cause we've done this like 10 times now and you feel bad about thinking that way. But you know, on the other hand, you can't, you know, you can't be on constant vigil. And so it's a balancing test. And the thing that got me through, particularly this last week, which also is what got me through when Chantal died is, you know, I would think, I would just ask myself, what would my dad want me to do? Right. Um, which is, you know, it's not quite the same thing as what, you know, what does, what does God expect of me or, you know, what would Jesus do or anything so grandiose? But my dad was a mensch and he believed in doing the right things for the right reasons and with integrity. And, um, and I wanted to behave in a way that when anybody asked, well, what did Jonah do? Um, you know, when my mom went into hospice or when my mom was at the hospital, that people could, that the answer would be something that reflected well not so much on me because I don't need the approval of a lot of people who are asking those questions, but they reflected well on my mom that I was raised properly, that I did, I did things for the right reasons and in the right way. And this is one of my regrets is that I, I, you know, 
I tried to protect my daughter from a lot of this stuff and she very much wanted to be involved in it. And she's the one who pushed me to visit more. And when my wife told Lucy, my daughter, that, you know, the hospice had started, um, you know, Lucy was out in school in California. She insisted on coming out here and my wife was for it and Drew was for it and I resisted it and I've, I sort of relented. Um, um, but I should have realized that what is true of my mother's son is probably true for um, my mother's granddaughter. And um, I should have had her, the second I went up to Weehawken, I should have had my daughter come out. Um, and I'm very proud of her that for the rest of, um, her life, when she's asked that question, what did you do? Um, you know, in one way or another, when your grandma died, she, she can say she did the right thing. And I think that that's, if there's going to be some <sighs> takeaway from this, um, you know, that's of use to other people, um, is ask yourself those kinds of questions. You know, what, what is the, how do you behave when it's hard, but it's important? And I'm not trying to brag here because I've made mistakes and all of this kind of stuff. But th my point here isn't that I did everything right. I don't think I did everything right. Um, uh, my point is, is that asking that kind of question of yourself is the best way to figure out what the right thing to do is. And um, I've tried to do that. And I don't know if this podcast falls on the positive side of the ledger of that question, but um, I apologize for zigzagging all over the place, but I wanted to get this over with. So again, maybe next time I won't have to dwell on anything sad and I can tell more stories about her. Thanks to everybody out there who offered their support and all the rest. And um, I promise next week things will be a little closer to normal. Um, I did, you know, oh, and, uh, you know, I was supposed to go on this two-year delayed trip with my wife for our 20th anniversary, which is now 22 years and counting. We had to cancel that, obviously. Um, so I still may, when I get all my mom's affairs figured out or all that kind of stuff. I stay, I still may get out of Dodge for a bit. Um, but you know, until then I'll be around, I need to work, you know, I, I need to be productive. I can't just wallow in self-pity and I know I am lucky. Um, I am lucky for the friends I have and for the family I had and the family I have now and, um, and for all of you. So with that, I'll see you next time.